0: In October 1943, one of the bloodiest air battles of the war was unfolding over German skies. Over 300 fighters were attacking the flying fortresses of the American 1st Air Division, who were on a
1: daylight bombing raid to Anklem, East Germany. The men on the aircraft that flew that day were seasoned combat crews. They thought later this was some of the hardest combat they'd ever fought in. It
0: was one of the first times the American planes from the 8th Air Force had been able to strike this far into the Nazi homeland. New modifications to the fortress meant that they could now travel much greater distances, but it also presented them with a new problem.
2: You know, the disadvantage of long-range bombing missions meant that the friendly escort fighters simply couldn't keep up with you with their smaller fuel tanks. So you were literally flying without their protection.
0: This is the remarkable true story of 10 men in one of those flying fortresses. A plane called Lightning Strikes. By the end of the mission, three-quarters of the bomber group were either destroyed or badly damaged. And 50 men never made it back. They were the raggedy regulars of Bassingborn. Bruce Crompton, history lover, military antique collector, and ex-paratrooper. In Amazing War Stories, you're going to hear about incredible actions, all taken from records housed in museum collections. It's only by unearthing these wonderful tales that I hope to support these important institutions. Honour the heroes that sacrificed so much and help preserve their legacies for future generations. In my mind, there is no better place than England in the summer. One of my favorite places to relax is a little-known air drum called Old Buckingham Airfield in Norfolk. During the war, it was home to an 8th Air Force bomber squadron. And for those of you who are old enough to know, you'll be amazed to discover that two Hollywood legends served there, Jimmy Stewart and Walter Mattow. All through the day, you can sit on the terrace outside the cafe and watch vintage planes come and go. It's lovely and you really get a feel of what it must've been like during that period. But there's another reason I love to visit. There is a fantastic museum there dedicated to the men that flew from the base. It's run by an old friend of mine, Jim Clary, and if you get the chance, you really must visit. Details on how to find it are on our website and show notes. Anyway, as I was watching the Spitfire come in and land, Jim sat down next to me and told me some sad news. A museum dedicated to the 8th Air Force, 91st Bomber Group had closed The collection and those amazing stories of heroism had been lost to the public. He wondered if
1: there was anything we could do. 91st Bomber Group based at Bassingbourne, Hertfordshire was a particularly famous group for a number of reasons. The public at the time had heard about them because it was home to the famous flying fortress, the Memphis Bell. The 91st Bomb Group has one of the most interesting nicknames amongst the Air Force and was known as the Ragged Irregulars of Bassingborn. This nickname came about simply because their numbers were so depleted on missions over Europe that at times they only had enough aircraft to help other groups fill the gaps in their formations. One airman who flew with the Irregulars was a man called Charles Combat Hudson. A larger-than-life character, he certainly lived life to its fullest. He played hard and he worked hard. In fact, he used to often go down on evening passes and would have a very good time out in local pubs with local girls. And he would then come back normally a little bit drunk in the early hours of the morning. And uh, when he was called for a mission, Donnie's uniform over his pyjamas, and he would fly on the mission in his pyjamas. The idea behind this was, in case it was cancelled, he would just go back straight into bed.
0: The tale that Jim told me about Combat Hudson was incredible, a testament to the tenacity and perseverance that was the hallmark of people from that generation. We had to make sure that at least his legend was preserved, a testament to the type of man who flew with the raggedy regulars. In his lifetime, amongst other things, he was a pro boxer and pro golfer, owned a famous restaurant, Charming Charlie's, became involved in a major prison break, and was also, bizarrely for a while, an exotic animal handler. But it was his story about his exploits on board a B-17 flying fortress called Lightning Strikes on a fateful mission on October 1943 that will stay with me forever. It really is an amazing war story. Remember, everything you're about to hear is true, no matter how extraordinary it sounds. In the early hours of the 9th of October, the moon shone coldly over the airfield at Bassingbourn, but there was anything but quiet at the airbase. 17 fortresses of the 91st Bomber Group stood on the apron each a swarm of activity, as men loaded ordnance, winched extra fuel tanks into the bomb bays and made sure each of the machine guns were fully loaded. Inside the nearby buildings, the bomber crews were undergoing their mission briefing. On a platform in front of all the air crews, Major Donald E. Sheila, himself a pilot, was revealing the target of today's bombing run to the men. The 1st Bomber Division, of which the 91st was part of, was going to Anglam, a city 75 miles north of Berlin. There was a whistler murmur from some of the crews.
3: Okay, okay. Fly down, fly down.
0: Most had not flown this far before, and they were fully aware that the missions they were now being sent on were becoming increasingly more deadly. Dr. Chris Mann is the head of the Department of War Studies at the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst. In
3: 1943, the war was in the balance. Although defeated by the Soviets at Kursk and facing the prospect of the Anglo-American invasion of Sicily and subsequently mainland Italy in the summer, Germany was still far from defeated. Albert Speer's reforms of the German economy for total war had led to a considerable increase in the production of armaments. A key part of Allied strategy was to halt, or at least disrupt this production, through aerial bombing. This was undertaken by the combined air fleets of RAF Bomber Command and the 8th US Army Air Force. The British developed a technique of nighttime area bombing, which targeted whole cities, not just their factories, but their entire infrastructure and populations in an effort to bring the German economy to a halt. The Americans believed that precision bombing was more effective. This approach required flying in daylight with all the risks that involved at the hands of Germany's sophisticated air defences. As a consequence, particularly in the early part of the campaign, US Army Air Force losses were terrifyingly high. Although the standard tour was 25 missions, the average crew only managed 11 before coming casualties. To be fair, the British loss rate was lower, but not by much.
0: Major Sheila pointed to a large map behind him. The main target of Fokker wulf aircraft component plant was 600 miles away, a total round trip of 1,200 miles, which would take them over the North Sea, Denmark, the Baltic Sea, and Northern Germany, and then all the way back again. But the target was only part of the group's objective. They were to be bait for the German fighters and hopefully draw them away From the other bomber divisions who were attacking more valuable targets further to the east. As Sheila mentioned this part of the plan, there were more grumbles and catcalls from the men. Not only that, in order to make the bombers even more enticing to the enemy planes, the group was instructed to fly at 12,500 feet, well within the height window of the German fighters. As you can imagine, the men erupted at this order. Command knew that fighter support for a mission like this would be limited. The P-47 Thunderbolts, P-38 Lightnings, and RAF Spitfires that would normally accompany them couldn't match the range of the newly modified B-17s. So for long periods, the entire division would be on its own and extremely vulnerable. Major Robert Paley is the official historian for the US 100th Air Force Refueling Wing, known as the Bloody 100th. They were first activated as a heavy bomber group in June 1942 and were part of the 8th Air
2: Force flying
0: B-17s from Newton Abba in Norfolk, England.
2: Flying a B-17 is nothing like the heavy bombers of today. Although they look large compared to modern planes, they didn't hold many bombs. They were in fact very cramped and were very difficult to get in and out of. It's one of the reasons why the 8th lost so many men. Once a plane was going down, more often than not, you went down with it. True to any bomber, they were ponderously slow, which made them easy prey for enemy fighters. The only advantage you had was the flight ceiling, the altitude that bombers could fly so in the event of your altitude being taken away and having no fighter escort, you really were a sitting duck. In one row of seats, the
0: officers and crew allocated to lightning strikes, one of the more popular of the planes looked at each other in disbelief. The captain, First Lieutenant Hilary Bud Evers, a fresh-faced 20-year-old from Cincinnati, Ohio, whispered to the man beside him, just
3: the way you like it, ain't
0: Charlie? Second Lieutenant Charles Hudson was a tough looking guy who grew up around an airfield in California. He had a smile that could win women's hearts and a fist that could silence his detractors. The crew were glad to have him on their side, even though this was only to be his fourth mission.
4: I wouldn't have it any other way,
0: bud. Hudson replied, but the news for these particular 10 men was going to get even worse. Major Sheila then started to read out the flying patterns.
3: Tail Charlie, lightning
4: strikes.
0: Lightning strikes was to be Tail and Charlie in the final formation, a place no one wanted to be. Bringing up the last place on a bombing wing usually meant that you were destined to get all the action as enemy planes would usually attack from the front, fly through and pass the formation, and then circle round to continue their attack from behind. The crews called this rear position purple arc corner. So on an operation like this, deep into enemy territory, and with limited fighter support, the men knew the chances of survival were terrifyingly low. At 7 a.m., the crew went to their aircraft and started to load up. Each bomber had 10 men on board, four flight officers, a pilot, co-pilot, navigator and bombardier, and six crew, who manned the guns, including a ball turret gunner underneath the plane, a tail gunner, and a top turret gunner. The Lightning Strikes Fortress had also recently been modified by the engineers, with two front-facing 50 cals for the bombardier. Normally, he would have to share the cheat guns either side of the nose with the navigator. This addition was to mitigate the aircraft's lack of firepower
2: to the front. At this point in the war, the latest fortress was the G-type, and it had one important distinction, a front nose turret. The fortress's main weakness was defending against head-on attacks, something that the Germans had worked out. So the G-type variant had a double-barrel, 50-caliber nose turret that the bombardier could operate. Lightning strikes, An F-type in the variant before this didn't have this turret. However, the talented ground crews had engineered a workaround where they sometimes placed twin 50 cals, often taken from the tail guns, of busted fortresses and put them in the nose cone.
0: First Lieutenant, Hilary Evers, called Bud by his friends, was the captain of Lightning Strikes, a fortress in the 401st squadron. He was an experienced pilot and had already clocked up a number of sorties. The other officers on board were co-pilot 2nd Lieutenant Robert S. Roberts from Kentucky, navigator 2nd Lieutenant Bruce D. Moore from Indiana, and of course, the charismatic bombardier 2nd Lieutenant Charles S. Hudson from California. The rest of the crew, Sergeants Alba, Wood, Tath, Young, Colvin and Gibb were also seasoned fortress men. Their responsibility was primarily manning the guns and keeping their eyes peeled for enemy fighters. Although Alba had the extra responsibility of being the radio operator, and Wood, who was the top gunner, was also the chief engineer. As they loaded up, a man jogged over to Hudson. It was Bo Gabler. His best friend and a larger-than-life Texan. Bo and Charlie had gone through training together and had made an amusing pack with each other. If either of them were on a different plane that was shot down, when they bailed out, they would wave at each other as they jumped away.
3: Hey, Charlie, remember our
0: deal? Asked Gabler.
3: Of course, but I ain't bailing today.
0: Replied Hudson and with that, swung himself up through the hatch. With everyone on board, the four mighty Pratt & Whitley engines fired into life. They each produced 750 horsepower and made a hell of a noise. Lightning strikes fully laden with its bomb load and extra fuel heaved off the runway and into the dawn sky. The men watched the fields of England turn into a patchwork quilt below them and must have wondered whether they would ever see the base and in some cases, their loved ones again. Squadron after squadron were circling in the sky above the Bassing Ball base. They were building their box formations, which would offer them the greatest protection against enemy fighters. Eventually, the Talyn Charlie plane lightning strikes joined the group. Bob Roberts, the co-pilot pointed up ahead. The lead plane of the entire wing had fired two green flares. This was the signal that all planes were present and the run
2: was now underway. The box flying formation was designed by legendary Air Force Wing Commander Colonel Curtis LeMay It was designed to create maximum protection, not only for the planes in the square, but also the wider squadron as all the boxes were interlinked. Planes would form four corners of a square and then each box would interlock with the other three boxes, both high and low, fore and aft. The thinking was you needed to give your gunners the widest and safest fields of fire possible, while at the same time, giving them interlocking firepower. Obviously, you didn't want to accidentally shoot down a friendly plane, but you also wanted a gun from the next plane to pick up from where you left off. This meant that pilots had very little leeway in moving their planes. They absolutely had to hold this formation for everyone's safety. The first part of the journey was uneventful. As the group
0: flew over the North Sea, the sun shone. The accompanying Spitfire fighters would give protection up to the edge of Denmark. Then they would be on their own. The trouble started as they neared the enemy-held coast. Enemy fighters had been spotted in the distance, but none seemed to press their attack. Maybe they were worried about the Spitfires higher up. So far on the run, four fortresses had had to abort the mission due to various technical difficulties, three of which were in Evers' squadron. Suddenly, the safety of their boxes was becoming broken and only 13 planes remained in the 91st formation. Bombardier Charlie Hudson looked out at his large plexiglass window at the front of the plane and saw the fighter escort start to peel away. They were on their own. There they go,
2: boys. Keep your eyes peeled.
0: It was now 11 a.m. The planes were nearing Enemy-dominated airspace as they crossed over Denmark towards the Baltic Sea. Bud told the men to hang tight. Things were going to get hairy. He wasn't wrong. Major Sheila's voice crackled over the radio from the lead plane. An enemy squadron of Focke-Wulf 190s was seen closing into their position fast. The German attack had begun. Hello! I hope you're enjoying
4: this episode of Amazing War Stories. I'm Ed Sayer, co-founder and producer of this show, and I just wanted to tell you about our new website, amazingwarstories.com. Inside, you can find out more about our podcast, take a deep dive into some of the weapons and equipment used by our heroes, or you can sign up to our awesome newsletter, where we give you the lowdown on military museums, host fun reader polls, and of course, Feature Little-known Amazing War Stories that Bruce and I have come across during our research. So after you finish listening, please take time to visit. And if you think you have an Amazing War Story you'd like us to feature, then do get in touch. Just click on the link on our show notes. Amazingwarstories.com, the home of military heroes.
0: Chaos broke out in the group as Tracer from a myriad of guns flew through the sky. The first fortress to go down was Chief Sly III, which was piloted by First Lieutenant Charles Pinning. Evers and the crew watched in horror as the plane drifted out of formation and started its slow death spiral to the ground. All American eyes searched to see if any
2: parachutes emerged from the stricken fortress, but none did. Although there were several ways out of a fortress, including jumping through the bomb bay doors if they were open, it was virtually impossible if the plane was in a spin. The centrifugal force alone would keep you pinned to the inside of the plane. The only small mercy would be that the high G-forces inside the plane meant that you were likely to black out before the end. It was a truly terrible way to go and almost as bad for the men watching. Everyone had been instructed to spot friendly planes going down and to count the parachutes so that the Air Force had records of where men were missing or killed in action, but it was also a stark reminder to the men of what their fate could be.
0: The weather was completely clear, and the American planes could be seen from miles away. The bomber wing crawled into German airspace, where they knew things would get even hotter. As they passed near New Brandenburg before the pivot north towards Anklam, fighters seemed to come from everywhere. More
3: than coming
0: in! The guns all around the ship blazed out as enemy planes shot past. they high, would never seen anything like it. I see, you, I see The intercom was alive with sightings Messerschmitt 109s, 110s, 14s focke Wolf 190s, Junkers 88, Heinkels, and Dornier's, even Stuka dive bombers had a go. It seemed the entire Luftwaffe had been sent to get them. Right. The gunners called out the positions of the attacking fighters to the rest of the crew. He's right below us. Literally hundreds of planes swarmed around the fortresses. Get them, Sergeant Taft, the ball gunner, claimed a kill as did the tail gun the sergeant did. Oh,
3: down, Captain. Good work, boys.
0: But still, the Germans kept on coming. The division was now nearing the IP, the initial point. This was when they were to start the bomb run, and many of the crews used to call it sweating time. It was a nerve-wracking part of the operation, as the planes were not allowed to take any evasive action no matter what was being thrown at them as
2: the Bombardier zeroed in the Norden
3: sights. Bombing run underway.
2: It's well known that Norden, the company that made the bomb sight, said that their sight was so accurate that it could hit a pickle barrel from 1,000 feet. Well, that was blatantly untrue. What isn't as well known is the fact that it wasn't the best bomb sight available at all. Apparently, the Sperry bomb site was more technically advanced, but Norden managed to win the PR battle with the US Army Air Force, who went with that site instead.
0: The pilots initially lined up the run, but then would flick the autopilot on and let the bombardier take control. The pilots had now essentially become passengers at this point. All they had to do was try and survive the flak until they reached the aim point. It was here when the Bombardier would release his sticks, the column of bombs. It was only then that the pilots would resume manual flying, which enabled them to move their fortresses a little out of harm's way. Normally, Luftwaffe fighters wouldn't attack during these runs as they were worried about being hit from friendly ground-based flat guns. But not this time, however. As the planes closed in on the IP point, more fucker wolves suicidally flew through their own flat to attack (laughs) head-on. The pilots passed so close that Colvin, the left-waist gunner, yelled out, Jeez, I
3: could see that guy's face. He was close.
0: Such ferocity brought down another fortress in the group. Its number three engine burst into flames. Again, the men watched as the fire spread to the other engines. This time, four parachutes were spotted, but the other six, sadly, didn't make it out. Bud got onto the intercom. Did
3: anyone else see that? One of those jumpers gave me a wave as he bailed.
0: Hudson smiled. It must have been Bowie, thought.
2: Meticulous record keeping is absolutely vital in war. Not only does it give commanders an understanding of enemy strengths and weaknesses, it forms the basis of telling loved ones what the fates of their children and partners were. So everyone was ordered to mark exactly when and where a plan had gone down and how many people, if any, had escaped from it. Of course, depending on what was going on, this wasn't always possible, but the men took this responsibility very seriously.
0: The formation had now reached the IP point and Lieutenant Evers switched the plane onto autopilot.
1: Over to you, Charlie.
0: Charles Hudson had taken his place at the front of the aircraft and was peering intently through his Norden bombsite. And that's when hell erupted like a volcano around them. The flat guns had opened up. The small black and white clouds looked harmless enough from a distance, but once they got close, you realized how deadly they were. Flat shells were primed to explode at specific altitudes, spraying deadly hot metal that could rip through the thin skins of the bombers. A direct hit would be powerful enough to blow a wing, clean off, or cause the plane to instantly break up. As lightning Strike started its run, the enemy increased the intensity of its attacks. Co-pilot Bob Roberts said he hadn't seen anything like it. The German pilots were literally flying through their own flak and were using plane-mounted missiles to press their attacks. Another plane, the old standby, began to drift out of formation. The captain, Lieutenant James Judy, told the group his bomb doors wouldn't open and they had already lost their waste gunner, killed by a single shot from an enemy plane. Suddenly, there was a huge bang. Lightning strikes had been hit and smoke was billowing from the starboard outer engine. Bob Roberts shut it down, switched on the suppression fire system and feathered the prop. Meanwhile, Bombardier Charles Hudson ignored all of this and continued to be focused on his task, calmly relaying the progress of the run over the intercom. One minute to target. Meanwhile, the navigator, Bruce Moore, had grabbed one of the cheat guns and was firing at the approaching fighters. The crew of plane 42, 30, were in a fight for their lives. And they knew it. It must have seemed impossible that they could make it through such ferocious opposition.
4: Hello. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Amazing War Stories. I'm Ed Sayer, co-founder and producer of this show. And I just wanted to tell you about our new website, AmazingWarStories.com. Inside, you can find out more about our podcast take a deep dive into some of the weapons and equipment used by our heroes, or you can sign up to our awesome newsletter, where we give you the lowdown on military museums, host fun reader polls, and of course, feature little-known amazing war stories that Bruce and I have come across during our research. So after you finish listening, please take time to visit. And if you think you have an amazing war story you'd like us to feature, then do get in touch. Just click on the link on our show notes. Amazingwarstories.com, the home of military heroes.
0: The 50 cows were literally glowing red hot as planes shot around the fortress. The crews would have felt like they'd taken a wrong turn and flown through the gates of hell itself. The plane was peppered with holes, right through the fuselage, from the incessant flack. <laughs> Ahead, Hudson could see the first of the bomber wings' ordnance start to explode over the targets. They just needed to hold her steady for a little longer. 15 seconds. Then, another bang, <laughs> another engine. The starboard inner started to smoke, but it was still working. Eventually, after what must have seen an eternity, Bombardier Hudson announced bombs away. And after watching them fall to mark their impacts, he left from his seat and yelled, Let's get
3: out of here. Go ahead,
0: Evers didn't need any more persuading. Flicking the autopilot off, he pulled the plane round with the formation and started the homeward journey.
2: Dropping your payload must have been in some sense a relief to the crew. They had done what they had been sent out to do, but they still had a perilous journey back, often being pursued by a relentless and vengeful enemy. The only benefit for the crews was that the planes were now devoid of their heavy cargo, and with the bomb bay doors closed, it meant that they could fly faster away from the target than when they approached it.
0: But there was a problem. The bomb bay doors wouldn't close. The hydraulics must have been shot through from flak. Coupled with the fact that they were without one engine and a second was at half power, they were at risk of dropping out of formation. Then another three planes in the group quickly went down. But the crew were so busy shooting, they couldn't see if any of the men made it out. Lightning strikes shuddered as yet another fighter flew past the air churned with flak. Suddenly, a yell was heard over the intercom. Ah! Hudson had been thrown violently back against the wall of the bombardier's compartment as bullets streaked through the nose of the aircraft. He'd been hit in the arm, maybe from a bullet ricochet or a piece of steel from the aircraft. Whatever the cause, searing hot metal had shattered the bone in his wrist and had knocked him to the floor. Moore helped him to his feet. Are
1: you okay, Charlie?
0: Charlie shrugged him off fine. and bellowed at it him to get betcha. back Goddamn to his gun. Fine. If they didn't keep shooting at those fighters, then they were all doomed. Administering some morphine, Hudson tucked his broken arm into the neck of his May West life jacket sat back in his seat and kept on firing with the twin-nose guns. He must have looked to sight. The yellow with his life jacket streaked crimson with his own blood. Meanwhile, the pilot and co-pilot were desperately trying to get lightning strikes back into formation. They knew that to be out on their own was certain death. The fighting became so intense that both Hudson and Moore soon ran out of ammunition. I'm
3: out! I'm out!
0: Navigator Bruce Moore left the front to get more rounds. To get to the spare ammunition, he had to work his way through the bomb bay and over a four-inch gantry, with the bomb bay doors still stuck open wide. It must have been completely terrifying, especially as the captain was flinging the plane around. Exhausted, he emptied the belts out of the boxes and draped them around his neck. Then, heavily laden down, he then started his perilous journey back to the front of the plane.
2: 50 caliber ammunition belts weighed an absolute ton. They were stored in metal ammunition boxes and you had to have a lot of upper body strength to lift one. It was much easier for gunners to empty the belts onto the floor and to drape the belts over their shoulders. At least they didn't have to also carry the weight of the box as well.
0: Meanwhile, Hudson had been knocked to the ground yet again. This time, a flat shell had exploded near the nose of the plane and a piece of metal had ripped through his right shoulder. The Bombardier found himself on his back, feet above his head. Dazed, he came around and picked himself up again, only to be hit a third time. A small sliver of flax sliced through his right arm, just above his elbow. He thought he was going to be killed little by little a death from a thousand cuts. The front of the plane looked like a cheese grater. Moore arrived back with the ammunition and was shocked to see the state the Bombardier was in. However, Combat Hudson used to be a professional fighter and was used to pain. He grimaced at the Navigator. Lieutenant Moore had learned his lesson once and instead of checking on Hudson, he got on the intercom and instead asked Wood, the engineer, to help load the gun. In the cockpit, Everson and Robbers, through sheer determination, had managed to get lightning strikes tucked in behind Major Sheila's lead plane. It was a superb piece of flying. Now back in formation, the men breathed a little more easy. They had the protection of the box again. However, it proved to be short-lived, because at that moment, the third engine began to give up. By now, as they neared the Baltic Sea, the flak had stopped, but the pursuit from enemy fighters continued. The starboard outer engine was getting worse, and lightning strikes was beginning to fall out of formation again. They had to get the Bombay doors closed. Captain Bud Evers told co pilot Roberts to take command whilst he went back to see whether he could manually close the doors.
2: Hey, Roberts, you've
0: got control. As he made his way back to the Bombay, he could see the cables had been shot through. Large holes gaped right through the aircraft, on every side. The captain wondered how they'd even made it this far. Inching across the gantry over the frightening drop, Bud grabbed the winch handle.
2: Bombers were designed to be streamlined. Having the bomb bay doors open caused significant drag, and especially so if you had engine trouble or had received other damage. It was imperative that you got the door shut if you were to keep up with the rest of the formation.
0: At that moment, an enemy fighter caused Roberts to dive. Lieutenant Evers was thrown against the ceiling of the bomber and then slammed back down. His legs astride the tiny gantry. The pain in his groin was excruciating, but he would take that over plummeting out of the aircraft without a parachute into the void below. Pulling himself up, he grabbed the winch and managed to close the bomb bay doors. Slowly, Bud hobbled back to the cockpit and climbed painfully back into his seat. With number three engine spluttering, Captain Evers decided to shut it down Casey caught fire.
3: Shutting
0: down three. Roger. With only two engines running, lightning strikes once again began to fall out of formation. They were losing a serious amount of speed and altitude. They had to get faster, otherwise, they would be picked off by an enemy fighter for sure. Evers got on the intercom and told the crew to start throwing out everything they had to make the plane lighter. All guns, ammunition, anything in fact that could be jettisoned should be thrown out. Hudson laughed as he imagined the German farmers wondering what all this kit was raining down amongst them. As the crew heaved out the guns, ammunition, in fact everything they could lay their hands on, the captain instructed Hudson to keep his fifty cals just in case. They needed those nose guns to defend themselves from more head-on attacks. Hey Charlie, don't throw your guns away. We're to Lightning strikes had reached the coast and was only 70 feet above the North Sea as it headed towards England. Combat Hudson slumped down in the nose as the double dose of morphine fully kicked in. As well as numbing the pain, the effects of the medicine made his world seemingly move in ultra slow motion to him. Hazily, he looked out the port window, where he spotted enemy planes flying hard at them. Over the intercom, Ernest Colvin, the left waist gunner, called out
3: Two enemy planes approaching
0: fast. Combat Hudson shook his groggy head. He couldn't give up just yet. As he clambered to his feet, He saw through the shattered plexiglass, one fighter break off to pursue another B-17. The other kept straight at lightning strikes.
2: The German fighter pilots worked out that the safest place to attack the B-17 was head on. The reason being is because it was the only angle where the least amount of guns could be trained on them bearing in mind the troubled state lightning strike was in the germans probably figured that they had already thrown their guns overboard so in theory this was going to be an easy kill for them
0: evans started to move the plane as much as he could without losing too much speed the fighters guns opened up but thankfully he had shot too early and missed completely the german fighter plane roared past he missed Get him, Hudson had the only working guns left on the plane. The rest, along with the remaining ammo, had been thrown overboard. The enemy plane looped around and lined up for another pass, this time at the rear. Lightning Strikes was now over the channel, nearly home. Hudson got on the intercom. Front,
3: keep the plane steady. I think I can get those guys.
0: Evers flew the plane true. The crew braced themselves for the inevitable, but incredibly, the German pilot missed the game. It was to be his undoing. The German flew right past over the top of the fortress, but made another fatal error. Pulling his nose up, he gave Hudson the perfect target. The crew was shouting over the intercom: Hit
3: him hard, Hudson.
0: Hit him hard. Charlie squeezed the trigger, and the twin 50 cows opened up. The bullet smashed into the fighter, killing the pilot instantly.
3: You
0: got him, Charlie! You got him! Yeah, Bruce Moore, in his shoulder. Luckily for him, Hudson's morphine had kicked him, and he didn't feel a thing. The enemy slowly turned over and smashed into the sea in front of the fortress. Cold water from the crash sprayed through the shattered nose of lightning strikes, soaking Hudson as he threw through the plume. But despite everything, they weren't out of danger yet. The bomber limped over the coast of Suffolk, flying low and made a beeline for Bassinborn.
2: Landing a plane is one of the most dangerous aspects of flying, landing a badly damaged fortress was another thing altogether, especially if you were injured. Even if not, you are mentally and physically exhausted from battle, so the pilots had to keep their wits about them to get those beasts down in one piece.
0: Charlie Hudson had now collapsed in the front from exhaustion and was being tended to by Moore, but he had lost a lot of blood. They had been flying for eight and a half hours and all were just holding on. As the airbase at Bassinborn loomed into view, Evers grabbed the very pistol and shot a red flare into the sky. A signal that he had injured on board and would need urgent medical attention. He throttled the two remaining engines back and brought the fortress down beside the runway. Damaged planes weren't allowed to land on the concrete in case they crashed and closed the strip for other planes. But lightning strikes had one last nasty surprise in store for the crew. As the captain applied the brakes, nothing happened. This was going to be tight for Evers. He only had two engines in which to apply engine braking. The two Pratt witnesses screamed in anger. And then the unthinkable. The right landing gear collapsed. The plane dug into the grass and for a moment, it looked like it might flip. But eventually, the fortress came to a halt, having performed a ground loop, which brought it to a stop, facing the opposite direction. Ambulances raced across the runway towards them. Across the airfield, Bud, saw Major Sheila's plane being tended to, and a stretcher carrying Hantman, the rear gunner, being manhandled off the plane. Out of the other window, he saw two other fortresses stuck together. The Shamrock Special had crashed in to the Careful Virgin, whose brakes had clearly failed on landing. By all accounts, they had been the lucky ones. The death toll on that day was horrific. The 91st lost five planes on the mission, 50 men out of action. Sadly, 30 of them lost their lives. Major Paley puts the mission
2: into perspective. The ragged Irregulars certainly lived up to their name on that mission. Records show that they were attacked by over 300 enemy fighters for over three and a half hours. However, it wasn't just that mission that was grueling. The very next day, on the 10th, there was another maximum effort raid where the 8th Air Force lost another 30 B-17s. In fact, in the four missions they flew in October 1943, they lost 148 aircraft. That's nearly 1,500 men either killed or taken prisoner. The B-17 crews of the 8th Air Force had a higher loss rate than any other division of the U.S. Armed Forces in all theaters of war. By the end of the war, the 91st had flown 340 missions and had the highest number of losses of any bomb group in the 8th Air Force. 197 fortresses lost in action. Despite the odds being stacked against
0: them, the crew led by First Lieutenant Bud Evers all thankfully survived the war. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your point of view, two of them, Ernest Colvin, the waste gunner, and Gilbert Taft, the Bull Turret Gunner, both became prisoners of war. Taft on the very next day after the Anglin mission. Lieutenant Charles Hudson received a DSC for his actions on that day and stayed in the Air Force, eventually obtaining the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. He became the US Air Force's highest awarded bombardier and by the war's end had flown 37 missions. However, he wasn't the only man to receive a DSC on that mission. Major Sheila's rear gunner and Major Sidney Hampman had his entire arm blown off at the shoulder from the Fokker Wolf fighter, but still didn't leave his post. Incredibly, he too survived. Hudson was finally reunited with his friend, Bo Gabner, after the war. The Texan had survived a prisoner of war camp and confirmed that it was him who waved at lightning strikes as he jumped out, just as he promised he would. Bud Evers died at the grand old age of 90. He was actively involved along with Charles Hudson in the 91st Memorial Group, which until recently used to regularly meet to remember. Charming Charlie, as Hudson became known after the war, beat Evers and lived until the age of 95. The Fortress Lightning Strikes wasn't quite as lucky as its crew. Unfortunately, on the 21st of February 1944, it was shot down by a German fighter. By this point of the war, it had completed 23 missions. The crew on that mission, all different from those in this story, all survived. They bailed out and became prisoners of war. A final word from Jim Clary.
1: 77 years ago, these heroic young men of the 8th Air Force completed their last missions over Europe. The museum at Old Buckingham commemorates their sacrifices and losses during this arduous campaign. If you're interested in the 8th Air Force and its history, please come and visit us. We have two wonderful museums there dedicated to these heroes. Military museums aren't just bases of learning. They are places of remembrance. To find out
0: more about this operation and the many others the 8th Air Force took part in, then please go to amazingwarstories.com to see some of the museums and organisations we are supporting. Whilst you're at our website, please do consider backing this venture with a subscription if you can afford it. We don't charge the museums for raising their profiles, so we rely entirely on your generosity to keep our mission going. I really want to help these vital institutions in these difficult times. They've taken a financial battering, and I'm worried that if we're not careful, the important stories they hold will become locked away from the public forever. So please do spread the word of what we're trying to do here. And if you can, please take the time to rate this podcast as it helps to be discovered by new listeners. One final thing, a word of thanks to the people, museums and organisations who free of charge gave up their time to help me tell this story. This episode of Amazing War Stories was researched, written and produced by Ed Sayer. The associate producer is Lois Crompton. Sound design and 3D mastering is by Vaudeville Sound and the music is by Extreme Music. Music